Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And I failed to mention that Jennifer's grandfather passed away uh, this past week. Appreciate your prayers uh, for him over the last several months, and we would appreciate your prayers for our family coming up. We are uh, leaving right after the service to go to Iowa to the funeral. And um, the Lord was gracious. Um, he he didn't suffer much. The last couple months were kind of tough, but um, kind of went quickly. He was 92 years old, and he trusted uh, the Lord as his Savior uh, earlier in life. So we are grateful that he is now at peace, and he doesn't have to worry about the, the pain and the suffering and uh, and the the effects of sin. Mark chapter five. We are going to be looking at the uh, the end of the chapter this morning. And the truth that we need to understand today is that we must have faith in Jesus Christ. The, the, uh, the truth that we often are reminded of is that we have to have faith in the gospel. And so we think that, well, we have to believe in some sort of message and in order for us to, to, to be right with God, we have to believe in this message. But what we, what we need to understand and what I think we'll see this morning is that the gospel is Jesus Christ. And so when we're believing in this message, we're believing in Jesus Christ. It's not just simply a message about something or some little facts here and there. It's a message about a person. Now, some would argue that... that um, we just have to put our trust in a, a message or a dogma. And while the Scriptures do speak of faith in the Gospel, in fact, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, Repent and believe in the Gospel. We, we can't miss the point that the Gospel is Jesus Christ. And it's, it's that simple. The Gospel is Jesus Christ. And, and, and although there are facts that are attached to that, even a child can understand the message of the Gospel and can believe in it. The gospel is Jesus Christ and his work. In fact, the scriptures talk of this frequently. John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is life eternal, Jesus says, that they may know me and or that they may know you, that is God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, "Come unto me, and I will give you rest." John 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has life. John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received Him. You see, the point here that I'm making is that, that the Gospel is Jesus Christ. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So faith is not some abstract concept where we have to put our faith in some, some substance or something. It is an object. And our faith can uh, be no stronger than if it's put in the object of Jesus Christ. So that means that we cannot simply have faith. We can't simply believe in, in just, just to believe. So if I believe in, the, in these sorts of things, then good things will happen, or I could be sure of my salvation. But, but when we say things like that, we're really missing the point. We, have to, we can't have faith in our own faith. And that's often what we go back to when we want to make sure that we are assured of our salvation. Well, if I, the only reason I, way I can know that I am saved is if I believe that I believed enough. 
Okay, we, we don't say it in those terms, but that's the idea. We look back to what we did and we say, well, I know because when I was at that time in my life, I was believing really strongly, so what am I believing in now? I'm believing in my own faith. But that's not the point. We got our eyes all in the wrong spot. Our, our eyes need to be focused on Christ. Our faith needs to be in an object. And that object is Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear, very clear about this fact that, that both at the time of our salvation that our faith was in Christ and in the continuation of our salvation, that is, our sanctification and ultimately glorification, our faith is in Christ. It is in Him. And that faith comes through the Word. It, it comes through um, the written Word of God. John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus prayed for those also who believe in Me through their Word. That is the Apostles' Word. And then probably the most familiar, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So then faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written, that is the Scriptures, the Gospel of John particularly, but the Scriptures we could say as a whole. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. So the way that we put our faith in that object, object Jesus Christ, is by focusing on the Word that talks about that object. And so that's where we receive the content of our faith, we could say. And this is the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for here in our passage that we're going to look at today. It's the kind of faith that He found in the woman with the hemorrhage that we looked at last week. It's the kind of faith that He demands from the synagogue ruler that we'll see today. And it's the kind of faith that He demands in you. That it is a faith in Him. So let's begin reading with verse 21. We'll start where the story starts and then we'll skip down to we'll skip down past the uh, the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage. And we'll go right to verse 35. So let's begin with verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Death, Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him. And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. And look down at verse 35. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any more? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be, be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John and the, bro the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was twelve years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given her to eat. 
Because Christ's power has no limits, He demands that we trust in Him alone. That there is no greater object for us to trust in. That Jesus Christ is the supreme object of our trust. And so we ought to trust in Him because His power has no limit. Now in verse 35, we see from a human perspective, Jesus was too late, wasn't He? While He was still speaking, that is to the woman with the hemorrhage, they came from the house of the synagogue officials saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Now the faith of the synagogue ruler, we saw the first four verses, 21 through 24, we saw that that he came to Jesus expecting that Jesus would heal his daughter from the sickness that she had. Now he, he realized that this very well could end up in death, but he knew that Jesus had had power over sickness. He had heard what Jesus had done, and even on the road here, he had seen what Jesus had done to this lady with this blood disease. And so he came recognizing that Jesus could do something. But now, from a human's perspective, he was too late. Jesus was too late because the daughter had already died. And so his servant came to him and said, don't bother him anymore. It's over. Okay, his limit. He he has a limit here. His limit is that he can only help people who are sick. He can't help someone who has died. So don't bother him anymore. That's the that's the idea of what's what's going on. They don't sense. They don't understand that Jesus can even raise the dead. Now there is no record of Jesus having raised any dead people up to this point. And so we we uh, we should not fault them too quickly. We should not uh, uh, criticize them too quickly because we probably would do the same thing. Well, certainly he could he could heal sickness, but we've never seen him raise anybody from the dead. So don't bother him anymore. Let him go and do some other uh, healings that he needs to 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 heal. But in verse 36, Jesus demands the synagogue officials' belief. But Jesus, overhearing that what was being spoken said to the synagogue official do not be afraid any longer only believe the way that jesus was going to display his power was through the faith of this synagogue official now it's interesting that jesus connects these two things this fear and belief that is they are opposites because in chapter 4 verse 40 let me have you turn there Chapter 4, verse 40, he did the same thing with the disciples. When they were out on the water, there was this fierce storm that had come, this violent storm. And Jesus says the reason that they didn't believe was because of their fear. The lack of their faith showed their fear. Let's begin reading with verse 39, chapter 4. And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The reason for their lack of faith was their fear. And so Jesus shows that the opposite of faith is fear. He does the same thing here in chapter 5, verse 36. He says to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid, only believe. He could say the same thing to him as he said to his disciples. Why do you still fear? Do you have no faith? 
Do you not believe what I can do, who I am and what I can do? Fear is the opposite of faith because it refuses to trust in God. Fear is short-sighted. It looks at the things around us and says, God can't do anything about these things. It's the opposite of pushing those things aside and putting our trust in God. Saying, God, you can do what you please. And so God was going to show the the strength of this man's faith. He was going to heal and, and show great power through this man's faith. Now, God doesn't always require faith in order to do a great work, but in this case, He did. And this would be an extremely difficult challenge for Jairus now that his daughter had died because he had faith that God could heal, that Jesus could heal, but but that he could raise the dead. I don't know about this. Now, the reason that that we know that that this was real death, because as we were reading, you probably picked up that, that there was this, this conversation that Jesus had with the, the people who were at the house. And they were suggesting that the person was dead, that the, the daughter was dead, but Jesus was saying that, that she was alive or that she would not this would not end in death. And so what we need to look at now in this passage is we have to see that this really was death. This really was this dead this girl really was dead. And there's five reasons that we we know that she was dead. First of all, verse thirty five, the messenger comes with a message saying that she had died. The second reason we know from this text that the the girl had died is from verse thirty eight. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. Now, some would argue that these are just house guests or people who lived with this girl. But Matthew records in chapter 9, verse 23, that in the house were flute players and the crowd was in noisy disorder. And this is in keeping with their custom that because bodies decomposed quickly, mourners had to assemble fairly soon after someone would die. And so what a family would do is they would hire professional mourners, which would include at least two flute players and one mourner. Now this mourner would come and weep and wail at the the top of their lungs and and call out the person's name who had died. And basically it was it was meant to to bring in the the sense of grief that was there. And this was the custom that that would happen. So when Jesus came Upon this commotion, and, Mark, and Matthew records that there was also a flute player there, we have to understand that this was a result of someone dying. There was no other reason that, that the house would be so chaotic other than this. In fact, the, uh, the Mishnah records that the burial of even the poorest person had at least two flute players and one wailing woman. But in this case, we have a synagogue official. We have the leader of the entire synagogue in that city. And so he was probably not a poor person. So that, that's why there was so much commotion, more commotion than just two flute players and a wailing woman. There's probably even more than that. So we know that the, person, that the girl was dead because the messenger says she was dead because there were mourners present. And then verse 40, because the mourners were laughing at Jesus says verse 40 they began laughing at him now the reason that they laughed was because they were so confident 
that she was dead. They wouldn't start the mourning process until they knew for sure that she was dead. Otherwise, they look foolish if the, if the person rises up and comes out and what's all the mourning about? Why all the crying? And so they would make sure that the person was indeed dead. In this case, they laughed at Jesus because they said, of course, they took Jesus to be speaking literally. No, she is not dead. She is only asleep. And so they laughed at him. So we know she was dead because the mourners knew she was dead. And then let's turn over to Luke chapter 8. And I'll show you the end of the story. Luke records that she indeed was dead. Luke chapter 8. Let's begin reading with verse 53. And they, the mourners, began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, Jesus, however, took her by the hand and called out, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately. So Luke records that her spirit returned to her. That is, that, that her body now was, was there, but her spirit had left her when Jesus raised her from the dead, as we'll see in our passage back in Mark chapter 5, we'll see that her spirit returns to her. That simply means that she, her spirit had left her, that she was indeed dead. And then the last reason that we know that from this passage that she was dead is from chapter 5 of Mark and verse 42. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And notice... Notice the next phrase. And immediately they were completely astounded. Her parents and the disciples were astounded because they indeed knew that she was dead. So this will help us as we, we, we get to this phrase that Jesus is talking about. She is not dead, but she is asleep. Okay, but We have to understand that this was not a mistake on Jesus' part, that she indeed was dead. But Jesus was doing something else, and so we need to understand that. But what I think Jesus is doing here in verses 37 through 40 is he's downplaying the whole event. He's not making a big commotion about what he's about to do. This is a very significant thing. For him to raise someone from the dead, this is the most significant thing that has happened, I would say, in his ministry from a human perspective. And yet, he's not making a big commotion. He's not drawing a lot of attention. And we see this in several ways. So, the first way that we see that Jesus downplays the event is that he only brings his disciples, his three disciples, three of his disciples, excuse me, verse 37. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So, just these three men, not all the disciples, he did not bring the whole crowd that was following him. He did not let everybody in the house come. We'll see that in just a second. But he brings only the three disciples. Now, this is the first time uh, when Mark records that Jesus takes only three of his disciples with him. You remember in, uh, later on in his ministry at the Mount of Transfiguration that Jesus brings only these three disciples. And then to pray at Gethsemane, he does the same thing, Peter, James, and John. But he, he only brings these three and then he minimizes the situation when he arrives. Verses 38 and 39. 
They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Now, what we would expect Jesus to do there, if he were trying to draw attention to what he was doing, would be what? He would say, Yes, she is indeed dead. I know that she is dead but I will raise her from the dead because I have power over the dead. That's what we would expect Jesus to do. But instead, he says, she has not died, but is asleep. Now, what can we understand Jesus to be talking about? Because we already saw from this passage that she was dead. That she was dead. Why would Jesus say that she has not died? I think there are only two possibilities. Okay, one is that he was lying or mistaken. Okay, That he's mistaken or lying. Or the other possibility is that he was speaking figuratively. Now, could Christ, let's take the first one, could Christ have been mistaken or lying? Not at all. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 says that God does not lie. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. And the life. The idea of him being the truth is that he is the opposite of lies, the complete opposite. He has the knowledge and the ability to stay away from sin. In fact, he cannot sin. He cannot lie. Titus chapter one verse two. So the only other explanation is why he would say such a statement like this: "The child has not died, but is asleep," is that he was speaking figuratively. Okay, so this is a figurative expression. The point here, I think, is the same point that Jesus was making in John chapter 11. That this death, okay, this, this thing that has happened to her will not ultimately end up in death. That I will raise her. It's not a misdiagnosis. Rather, it's a prophecy of her resurrection. You see, it, it will be as if she's just sleeping when I get done with her. But he minimizes the situation, as we'll see, in order to show that that uh, in, in order to reduce the the pressure that could come upon him. Let's turn over to John chapter 11. Look at that passage quickly, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And in this case, he doesn't minimize the situation. He, in fact, does it very publicly. John chapter 11. The disciples misunderstand what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 11 as well. When the sisters send messengers to the Lord to tell him that that Lazarus is sick, what does Jesus say in verse 4? But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, we could ask the same question here. Is Jesus mistaken? Does he know that Lazarus will in fact die? But look at verse 14, because Jesus shows that that he indeed did know that Lazarus would die. Verse 14, so Jesus then said to them plainly, because they were not understanding it, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So his point in verse 4 is that it will not ultimately end up in death. That although 
He has died. Yes, verse 14, He has died. Lazarus is indeed dead. In fact, he was dead for three or four days. He will be raised. And my point is is that it will not ultimately end up in death. Jesus is saying about this girl that that she is dead, but I will raise her. But he, he downplays the event, and I think he does it because in John chapter 11, let's read verse 45, because we'll see what the result of, of him exposing this event. When he does raise Lazarus from the dead, look at the uproar that follows. Therefore, verse 45, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But... Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Look down to verse 53. So, from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So back to Mark chapter 5, why do you think that Jesus downplayed this event? Because he knew that if he exposed, if he allowed people to see this raising of the dead of this girl, then they would plot his murder all the more quickly. That he would experience a premature death. And so he recognized that his time had not yet come as the Gospel writers often say. His time had not yet come. He still had work to do. So he didn't want to raise her from the dead publicly. He wanted to keep it quiet. So he downplayed the event. Jesus was sparing himself from preliminary death. And so he takes only three of the twelve disciples. He removes the mourners from the room so that they cannot see this and they cannot witness this. He, he speaks in figurative terms. And then he takes only the parents in, verse 40. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions. So there's just the five guests plus Jesus and the girl in the room to witness this event. And Jesus does this in order to save himself, to spare himself from preliminary death. But Jesus shows that he has that his power has no limit in verses 41 and 42. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. <clears throat> the crowd could not see what was happening in the room, but Mark records what happened through the eyes of Peter. You remember Mark is a, a close friend of Peter, and although he didn't witness all these events, Peter did. And you can just imagine that this, this phrase that Jesus spoke to this girl still rings in his ears. Talitha kum. That's why Mark puts it in the Aramaic language. It is the language which the people in Palestine spoke at that time. And, and Peter can still remember it in that native language. And so Mark records it that way so that we can hear it ringing in our ears as well. That the, that the room was completely silent until Jesus called for this girl to get up and walk, to, to get up from her bed. Now, to, for Jesus to touch 
a girl. You see in verse 41, it says, taking the child by the hand in order for him to touch a dead person. This would normally cause a person to become unclean. You remember the, the Old Testament laws that if you touched a dead body, you were unclean for a certain number of days. But what does Jesus do? He touches this dead body and instead of him becoming unclean, just like the just like uh, the leper in chapter 1, verse 40 and 41, and like the hemorrhaging woman earlier in this chapter, he touches things that are unclean, but instead of him becoming unclean, what happens? He makes the unclean clean. He gives life to that dead body. And the proof of her life, her life is found in verse 42. Immediately the girl got up. So right away she got up and Jesus told her that she was to eat Luke chapter 8, verse 55, we saw that her spirit returned to her. And then Jesus continues to downplay the event by, by, protecting, uh, by, by restricting the people from talking about it. Verse 43, He restricts them from talking about the situation. And He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And He said that something should be given her to eat. Now, we've asked this question several times because Jesus has said this to demons. They said, Jesus, you are the Son of God. And he says, no, you, you keep quiet. Or when, when uh, the leper was healed, he said, do not tell anyone about this. And so we'll have to ask it again here. Why not let people find out about this great miracle? Won't they all believe if they've seen somebody rise from the dead or if they've heard about it? But remember the story of Lazarus and the uh, um, Lazarus and and the uh, the rich man who went down into Hades, and the rich man says, "Could you please just send someone to my brothers? Send some send even Lazarus. If they see someone who has risen from the dead, then they will surely believe." And Jesus said, "If they haven't believed Moses and the prophets." That is, if they haven't believed the Scriptures that they've already been given, they will not even believe if someone rises from the dead. People don't need more evidence in order to believe. They need the gracious work of God in their hearts. They need God to give them life. No amount of evidence will bring somebody to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that they, they can be saved apart from the Scriptures. Certainly they have to hear the Word of God. They have to understand the message of the Gospel. But they don't need to see somebody rise from the dead. They don't need to see a miracle. All they need is the grace that comes from God when He changes a person's life. Now, perhaps in this situation, Jesus was restricting them from telling anyone about this because he wanted to give Jesus time to get out of the city. He knew, that, uh, he knew that if people found out about it, he would be crushed in even more and wouldn't be able to get out. But I really think that he, he hasn't finished his job on the earth and that the Jews would, would seek his execution quicker if he had allowed this message to get out. You remember what happened when Jesus showed his lordship over the Sabbath at the beginning of chapter 3. Let's turn there. Jesus heals the man with the withered hand. 
in the synagogue in front of all the Pharisees. Look at verse 5. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to them, stretch out your hand. said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. When the Pharisees got a whiff that that Jesus was the Messiah, they began to plot his murder. So if if Jesus would have allowed this message to go out and to to be disseminated in a way that he did not want it, then that secret about his messiahship at this point would not be advantageous for him. In fact, it would probably lead to his quick opposition and his early death. Now, Jesus uses this time between now, that the, the story that we're reading about in chapter 5, and the time when, when his death does come, he uses this time to teach his followers, particularly his disciples, about what is going to happen to him. And later on we'll see, in fact, let's turn to chapter 9. Chapter 9. We'll see the reason why Jesus was withholding the Jews from knowing what was going on and even other people because he did not want to get the message out until something happened. Mark records for us exactly why. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered unto the hands of men, into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, he wanted to explain to the disciples what was going to happen to him. But even when he explained it clearly, in explicit terms, they still did not understand him. In fact, Peter said, No, Jesus, that will never happen to you. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Because you are not talking as if you are speaking on behalf of God. You're speaking on behalf of Satan. And I think the other reason that Jesus wanted to keep this event downplayed in chapter 5 is that He didn't want people to follow Him simply for the miracles. He doesn't want people just to come for him, to Him for what he, he can provide. A little entertainment. Oh, thank you for, for, for keeping me entertained for a little while. Wow, that was really interesting how you took that person that was crippled for all their life and now they're walking. Or that person that was dead, wow, I've never seen that before. That's amazing. That was very entertaining for me. Jesus doesn't want that kind of following. He wants people to follow Him for His message, for what He has to offer. And I think the same is true today. God is not looking for you to be interested in Him for what He provides for you. God wants you to be interested in Him for Himself, for who He is and what He has done. Jesus has power over death. We saw that this week and we saw His power over sickness last week. Both of these truths show that He is the Messiah, that He is the promised Christ and that He can be trusted in all areas of life. 
And what we have to recognize is that Jesus is not trying to gain a following. He's working to create followers. He's not just trying to make a crowd. He's trying to build a church. A build a group of people who are willing to follow Him whatever it takes. He doesn't want people to simply come to Him for the sake of what He offers or provide, but He wants people who will come and develop a relationship with Him. And this is evidenced in the the synagogue ruler. He says, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. We we should not misunderstand this. Jesus is not berating this man for some superficial failure to see what was going to happen at the end. Certainly, we we have to recognize that 12-year-old girls die. Storms do kill people. Cancer can take out uh, 15-year-olds or or 50-year-olds. Accidents happen. But to think otherwise is to think of some utopian optimism. That's not what Jesus was calling for. Don't worry about these things. They'll all be be fine. The faith that, that Christ required was faith in Him. Faith in Jesus. Not simply that He could do something or that He could help them out, but rich faith in Him precisely because if He is the promised Messiah, if He has been sent by Almighty God, it is ridiculous to think that this was an accidental death. That this death that happened in this girl's life, in this girl's situation, was was outside of God's control. And so the fear that Jesus told the man to do away with betrayed him from having a faith-filled grasp in who Jesus was and what He could do. And I would say for us that that we cannot get get bogged down in our fears. We cannot allow our fears to drive our actions and our attitudes. Our fears are evidence that we lack faith in Christ. And so we have to recognize that that our faith rests in one who has been promised in the Old Testament, given to us in the New Testament, and and remains with us. Matthew chapter twenty eight, verses eighteen through twenty say that all authority has been given in heaven and in earth. And he says, Go out and, and preach the gospel and so on, then he says, Lo, I am with you always. Jesus says this. To all believers, He has not left us alone. And so we should not fear, just as we sang earlier today. There is nothing that we should fear because God is our rock, our fortress, and Jesus is worthy of our trust. Let me ask you to bow together with me in prayer. Lord, we pray that we would give ourselves wholly to You. Thank You for Jesus Christ and the power that He has over death. The only reason that He can have that power is because He is You. He is God. And we thank You for His ministry on this earth. Thankful for how He carefully uh, displayed His miracles to certain individuals and He was spending most of His time giving out the message of Scripture. And that is what we want to do as well. We don't want to entertain. We don't want to draw a crowd. We want to 
see your church built. And we know that if we follow your word, that even the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. That no power on earth, no power in the spiritual realm can stop us. For who can separate us from the love of Christ? Lord, we want to be loyal to you. Unlike the morning dew and the morning fog, we want our we want to be loyal to you, a loyalty that, that does not fade away. And so we pray that you would give us the strength to obey and to put our confidence in Jesus Christ and what he has done, not in anything that we have done, for for we were not saved because of something that we had done, but it was according to your mercy that you saved us. And Lord, if there is someone here who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray that you would give them the grace to be able to respond to the command from Scripture for them to repent and believe. And we know that only comes from your power and according to your good plan. And so we pray that you would do a work in in those who are not saved. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we ask that you would give us the strength to follow for only through your Spirit, by the power of the Word, can we do what you have called us to do. We pray that you would help us to use these truths as we go out into the sin-cursed world in which we live so that we would be uh, representatives of you in a way that you would be pleased. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.